Buzzard writes in, you can't celebrate David Johnson if you're also a zero RB person. Hypocrite! With a hashtag. Of course. Of course. That was on Twitter, and you can contact us on Twitter at Roto Underworld or email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com. I followed that hashtag. Don't do it. Pro tip of the day. If you see hashtag hypocrite on Twitter, do not click on it. And why can't I celebrate David Johnson? What? I absolutely have David Johnson street cred. I not only was drafting him in the second round of Dynasty Rookie Drafts throughout 2015, I have also sacrificed on the David Johnson altar. Over a year ago, when this show was very young, I stumbled upon an article on brojackson.com. Yes. A serious article about NFL draft prospects was submitted to brojackson.com. This was an article by Johnny Rumford, and it wasn't a parody, even though it appeared on brojackson.com. Serious article about NFL running back prospects. And it had rankings. The reason the article was noteworthy to me is because it was the first article published after the draft. It came out on Sunday. The draft concluded on Saturday. It was written quickly. So that was noteworthy item number one about that article. Noteworthy item number two, many of my favorite running backs were outside the top five. Some of them were outside the top 10. And there were two egregious rankings in that article. David Cobb and Mike Davis were both ranked ahead of David Johnson and Tevin Coleman. And I was outraged. I felt the rankings were misguiding dynasty owners and the analysis was flawed. I came onto the show and I explained my position, why you can't rank David Cobb ahead of David Johnson, why you can't rank Mike Davis ahead of Tevin Coleman. Laid it out. What happened? Johnny Rumford heard the show and blocked me on Twitter. Oh no! Johnny! Come back! So that should be a lesson learned. You never know who's listening, and we need to be kind and supportive of all fantasy analysts, even when they produce bad content. Right? 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 (coughs) Of course not. I realized at that moment, wow, this microphone is powerful. Johnny Rumford tracked me down on Twitter and blocked me in an effort to prevent me from ever getting a hold of his sports opinions because they were so thoroughly eviscerated. And we've been eviscerating fantasy analysts ever since! They are ashes on the David Johnson altar. Fantasy football relationships have been sacrificed in the name of David Johnson's greatness. So you better believe... The dirty dancing music is coming on after a David Johnson three-touchdown game. Nobody puts David Johnson in a corner behind Mike Davis and David Cobb. David Cobb's out of the league. Mike Davis might see meaningful touches this week if Carlos Hyde sits. But if you go to our rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings, we have Sean Drone ranked ahead of Mike Davis because Sean Drone has been an efficient running back in the NFL. Mike Davis has never been that. Sean Drone is a much better receiver than Mike Davis and they're equivalent between the tackles runners. Advantage Sean Drone. 
I don't care who the beat reporters speculate will lead the team in touches. I can't tell you how much I don't care about the speculation of beat reporters. Last year as a starter, Sean Drone had four straight games with more than 12 fantasy points. Week 9 against Atlanta, 96 yards and four receptions. Against Seattle, 77 yards, eight receptions. Against Arizona, another stout run defense, 86 yards, five catches. And against Chicago, 86 yards, and another five catches. We live in a PPR world, and in a PPR world, you should be picking up Sean Drone before you pick up Mike Davis. And the beauty for me is, in 2015, Johnny Rumford was drafting David Cobb and the one and only Mike Davis ahead of Tevin Coleman and David Johnson. But if Carlos Hyde is out this Sunday, the presence of Mike Davis will prevent me from playing Sean Drone in cash. I love playing newly minted starting running backs in cash. It's my favorite thing, maybe in all of fantasy. But fortunately, we'll probably have additional options. Of course, we can always fall back on Jaquiz Rogers. Ah, jackpot. You hit the jackpot with Jackpot Rogers. Quiz, as others call him, is going to be a full-time starting running back and one of the tremendous value plays across all DFS platforms. So we'll be playing Jaquiz Rogers in cash. We haven't even run the computer's optimal lineup program yet, and I can already tell you Jaquiz Rogers will be in lineups. Oh, yes. And if LaShawn McCoy is out this Sunday, so will Mike Gillisley. If LaShawn McCoy is out, we're going to have lineups with both Jaquiz Rogers and Mike Gillisley in the backfield. And that will ensure that we can start both Odell Beckham Jr. and Julio Jones this week. Because that's what you do in daily fantasy, especially on full PPR platforms like DraftKings. You pay for wide receivers. You pay for wide receivers. You pay for wide receivers. And our player rankings, player profile com forward slash player dash rankings include point projections and we have Odell Beckham and Julio Jones projected for four more points than the next player on the list Mike Evans Mike Evans will be a great play this week as will Allen Robinson Allen Robinson faces the Oakland Raiders defense giving up plus 9.72 fantasy points per game above the mean to opposing wide receivers if Allen Robinson doesn't erupt this week and bring his fantasy points per game back to the mean we'll have a problem we will officially be worried about Allen Robinson make or break week for Allen Robinson in week seven but by the time this podcast drops the lineup optimizer could be live Check it out, playerprofiler.com forward slash optimal dash lineup. Someone that's not going to appear in the optimal lineup tool is Alshon Jeffrey because he plays tonight, Thursday night game against the Packers. Jeff Janis, not going to appear in the lineup optimizer. If Devontae Adams is out and the Packers were playing on Sunday, Jeff Janis would absolutely be showing up in our GPP lineups. We offer 10 GPP lineups and 10 cash game lineups on both DraftKings and FanDuel. And I would love to get Jeff Janis in there. I would love to get Alshon Jeffrey in there, but we can't. And the beauty of this lineup optimizer tool is 
It's a free add-on. When you subscribe to the rankings, you get the lineup optimizer for free. It doesn't cost extra. If this was Fantasy Labs, the lineup optimizer would cost $70 a month. I like charging a premium for quality services. A higher price tag implies higher quality. Raising the price is actually a marketing gimmick. It's a marketing tactic I believe in. But Fantasy Labs is taking luxury pricing to the next level in fantasy football. Woo! Warren Buffett goes to Fantasy Labs and he's like, eh, maybe next year. <laughs> but I wish I could play Alshon Jeffrey. I wish I could play Jeff Janis. I can't. So what do you do? You go to Alshon Jeffrey's page on playerprofiler.com and you click play Alshon Jeffrey on no halftime. And you can challenge your friends to an Alshon Jeffrey prop bet. Or you can challenge your friends to a Jeff Janis prop bet. Go to playerprofiler.com, click on Play Jeff Janis on No Halftime, and then encourage your friends to also download the No Halftime app in the App Store. And then you can challenge each other to prop bets. Do you think Jeff Janis will score 10 fantasy points tonight in the absence of Devontae Adams? Well, there's plenty of nihilistic Jeff Janis haters in the world that you could challenge on no halftime. Do it. And whether it's playing cash games or GPPs on DraftKings or setting up a friendly prop bet on no halftime, when I set lineups and when I offer props... I always think of it as fun, not business. We had a buzzard right in. Why was Fantasy Mansion, of all people, Mr. Analytics, playing roulette in Vegas? That's right. I talked in a previous show about how I hit four straight 13s playing roulette. It happened. I have photographic evidence of it happening. We'll post it on Twitter as soon as I finish recording. But you can't get an edge when you're playing roulette. The house always wins in the long run when you play roulette. Fantasy Mansion should be playing poker. The Podfather should be playing blackjack. No, I much prefer roulette to blackjack and poker. Why? Because I know where my business interests are and I know where and when I'm supposed to have a good time. I don't go to Vegas to make money. I don't play Daily Fantasy to support my family. I understand there are people in this world called professional poker players. I would never make that career choice, but I understand they exist. That's just not for me. When I go to Vegas, I want the rush of the roulette wheel. That, to me, is the most fun. I don't care about getting an edge on the house. I'm not paying attention to the rake, but I am having the most fun in the entire casino. Bank on that. So there are games I stay away from, just like there are players I stay away from in Daily Fantasy, for example. This week's number one stay away, Demarius Thomas. Why? Because Demarius Thomas's efficiency has been declining year over year for four straight years. Demarius Thomas was one of the league's most efficient wide receivers in 2013. His efficiency declined to merely average in 2014. Then in 2015, his efficiency was as low as any wide receiver in the league. And if you adjust for target share, he was the least efficient wide receiver in the NFL. 
His efficiency has rebounded this year, no doubt about it. Plus 23.5 production premium, 11th in the league for Demarius Thomas. But he's also being out-targeted and outscored in fantasy football by Emmanuel Sanders. And this week, he'll be matching up with A.J. Boy. A.J. Boy does not have an elite corner name brand. But he is absolutely one of the best cornerbacks in the league. According to the efficiency metrics that we are gathering on cornerbacks, A.J. Boy is as hard to score fantasy points against as any cornerback in the league. And he lines up exclusively on the outside. His slot rate is only 5.1%. So Boy is matched up with outside receivers 95% of the time. And in five games played, he's only been targeted 16 times. No receiver is targeted less on a per-snap basis than A.J. Boy. And on those targets, he's only allowed 57 yards. That's 2.4 yards per reception. When passes are being completed to receivers being covered by A.J. Boy, they're incredibly short passes. Boy is also top five in the league in passes defended per game. He's successfully defending more than one pass per game. That's exceptional. And Boy is second in the league in passer rating allowed. So when quarterbacks target A.J. Boy, usually they fail. Just ask Andrew Luck and T.Y. Hilton. This is very bad news for Demarius Thomas, but it could be good news for Emmanuel Sanders. While A.J. Boyd does not have the name recognition of other name-brand cornerbacks like Josh Norman and Richard Sherman, he's playing much better than they are. And while Emmanuel Sanders has been playing better than Demarius Thomas, you know the Houston defensive coordinator will be treating Demarius Thomas as Denver's number one wide receiver. So A.J. Boy will likely lock up with Demarius Thomas, and that will free up Emmanuel Sanders on the other side of the field. That's why Emmanuel Sanders is our number one contrarian play of the week in DFS. You generally want to stay away from all wide receivers facing Houston's defense. But if you're looking for a contrarian play in GPPs for Week 7, it's Emmanuel Sanders. Houston allows negative 6 fantasy points per game to opposing wide receivers below the mean. But that's mostly due to the extraordinary capabilities of A.J. Boy. And if you get enough targets, you're eventually going to succeed. And targets will likely be funneled in Emmanuel Sanders' direction in Week 7. That's why he's our contrarian play of the week. When I look at the list of cornerbacks sorted by the playerprofiler.com coverage rating, and all this cornerback data is going to be available to you in the coming months, I'm noticing multiple cornerbacks without name brands showing up near the top of the list. Prince Amukamura is another one. When you think of good defensive players, you don't think of anyone on the Jacksonville Jaguars, but he's absolutely that. This is one of the reasons why I'm so excited to play Alshon Jeffrey this week, and I really wish the Bears were playing on Sunday and not Thursday. But if you're entering a contest that includes Thursday's games, play Alshon Jeffrey. All three of Green Bay's top cornerbacks are out. And Alshon Jeffrey has faced a murderer's row of cornerbacks. He started off the season matched up with A.J. Boy. Whoops! Then he had to deal with Philadelphia's defense, Dallas's defense, Darius Slay, Vontae Davis. And last week, 
Prince of Mukamura. Now, Mukamura hasn't played in as many games as AJ Boy, so the passes defended numbers and the yards per reception numbers are all based on a small sample, but Mukamura's only been targeted eight times in three games. That's less than three targets per game. Offensive coordinators and quarterbacks are staying away from Mukamura. Most of the targets on Mukamura's 2016 game log are the result of him being tasked with the impossible, covering Alshon. Jeffrey. Alshon Jeffrey is responsible for most of the targets sent Amukamura's way. So this is the first week all season that Alshon Jeffrey will not be facing an elite defense or an elite cornerback. That's why we have Alshon Jeffrey as a top 10 play this week. Others are not ready to rank Alshon Jeffrey in their top 10 because his average fantasy points per game this year is only 13.0 outside the top 30. How can you rank a wide receiver producing fantasy numbers outside the top 30 in your top 10? Because it's Alshon Jeffrey. And he's had the hardest schedule of any wide receiver by leaps and bounds. That's how. But there's no narrative street reasoning for playing Alshon Jeffrey this week. It's just the numbers. Just advanced efficiency metrics on cornerbacks. That's how you know Alshon Jeffrey's been unlucky up until this point, and you should be playing him this week in all formats. And you're fading Drew Brees this week, not because of Narrative Street. I understand Narrative Street is usually the one responsible for these home road splits arguments. Like the Ben Roethlisberger's bad on the road nonsense from last week. No, Ben Roethlisberger isn't bad on the road. Ben Roethlisberger is bad when his knee doesn't work. And Drew Brees is not scheduled to underperform at Kansas City because he's going on the road. No, it's because he's going away from a dome. That's why. Generally speaking, all players do better at home. That's empirical. There's a reason why Las Vegas gives a three-point premium to home teams. But the standard premium assigned to home players doesn't fully account for Drew Brees' exceptional capabilities at home, juxtaposed next to his good but not great performances on the road. But I have an explanation for you. It's much easier to play football with precision in the antiseptic conditions of a dome. Drew Brees has been much better at home so far this year, but it's still a small sample. Go back to last year. Yards per attempt at home, 8.47. Away from home, 6.96. We shouldn't say away from home. We should be saying away from the dome. Because look at Matthew Stafford. The splits differential is also striking. 7.83 yards per attempt at home, 6.59 on the road. When you're playing football on grass and in the weather, you're going to be much less precise than when you're playing it on artificial turf with no wind at 70 degrees. So in our weekly rankings, we have Drew Brees ranked outside the top five, but it's not because he's going on the road. It's because he's going outside. Also because, in general, playing New Orleans players can be maddening. Just when you think you're either going to get a Mark Ingram touchdown or a Drew Brees touchdown, what do they do? They hand the ball off to Kobe Fleener. The New Orleans Saints, always innovating, always inventing new ways to fuck over fantasy owners. And we'll ask our guest today, John Evans, if he is regularly fucked over by a particular team or a particular player or narrative street in general. 
as I tend to be, and we'll ask John about the Green Bay running back situation, which is currently in flux, and the Tampa Bay wide receiver situation, which is currently in flux. You'll notice I'm speaking as if I haven't already recorded the interview, but you've figured out by now these monologues are recorded after the interview. And in editing the interview, I noticed something. Sexual innuendo throughout John's answers. It was unintentional, and I didn't pick up on it while it was happening. But as you're listening to this interview, run a program in the back of your mind, identifying all the areas which could have been construed as sexually suggestive. So, let's go talk to John. You can follow him at John F underscore Evans on Twitter. Welcome to the Roto Underworld podcast, John Evans. John is the co-host of the X's and Y's podcast. He's also a writer for PlayerProfiler.com. One of our own, John Evans. Talk to me. Hey, Matt. How you doing tonight, man? I'm not doing well, John. I'm not doing well at all because I'm inundated with questions about this Green Bay backfield. I tweet one message, 140 characters, about Niall Davis and... 50 tweets come back at me. Niall Davis, Don Jackson, or should I be considering Sean Drone, or what about Mike Gillisley? Help me, help me, Fantasy Mansion, help me, help me. So many people are drowning on social media, and they need our help, John. They need a free agent acquisition life preserver. So many people cannot make up their mind about which free agents to pick up for their fantasy team. I find that fairly amazing, the number of indecisive fantasy gamers that exist in the world. Well, it's a very chaotic time right now with all of these injuries and setbacks to injuries and guys that are coming back and then don't come back and it's, uh, you know, I, I sympathize. I have my own waiver wire dilemmas. And, and sometimes, like, the size of the league and the size of your roster, you know, just inject a, a level of drama into these decisions. Like, for instance, if you have a short bench, you know, and you're trying to decide between five or six guys, you know, like, wow, you know, is it upside? Is it security? You know, well, how much am I counting on my other guys? Like, is there a buy coming up? I mean, there's so many variables to consider. In the Roto Underworld Redraft League, most of my player buys are in week eight. Or nine. But I'm continuing just to (laughs) ignore it. I'm not looking forward at all. I'm making all my decisions for week seven. It's like I'm ignoring the housing bubble. (laughs) It can't keep going up forever. I understand that. But I don't care. I'm going to buy another condo. Yeah, weeks eight and nine are going to be just brutal with the buys. And at least the good thing is they're going to affect us theoretically all equally. So everyone will be shorthanded and and scrambling. I often get asked, which upside player should I stash? All I can think is, well, he's not going to be on your roster very long because if you're merely stashing him, as soon as week eight rolls around, bye-bye, I need a guy that's playing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the the deep stashes, the Kenneth Dixons, uh, you're not going to have that luxury in most leagues. That's exactly who I was thinking about. I know earlier you were thinking about Doug Martin, and in that moment, you understood that I was thinking about Kenneth Dixon precisely. Mm -hmm. That's my fear with this Green Bay skill position soup that we're now stirring. 
Ty Montgomery is going to lead all Packers in backfield snaps on Thursday. That's the projection. And then in week eight, week nine, it might be Niall Davis. It might be Don Jackson. But both of those guys, Niall Davis and Don Jackson, they qualify as stashes at this point. And because they're on that Packers offense, they are upside stashes. Even if they're just guys, they're guys in a potentially prolific offense, so you have to roster them just in case, right? Definitely depends on the size of your bench. I mean, I'm in a deep, deep league, and I blew a lot of waiver wire dollars on Niall Davis simply because I have Eddie Lacy, and why not? But, I mean, it's it's a complete dart throw. And also, this isn't the Green Bay offense of old. I mean, it, it isn't in a, a just add water, and you're going to get this delightful uh, stud. I mean, how good was uh, Eddie Lacy uh, over the last 12 games? Oh. So, you know, he's uh, he, he Niall Davis is stepping into a situation where, yeah, he should get uh, touches because who else is going to be the early down and goal line back? I mean, they they could give Aaron Ripkowski some goal line plunges, get back to the John Kuhn days. That could definitely happen. Uh, Great point. Because Niall Davis is not a traditional between-the-tackles kind of a guy. I mean, he, he's going to break some big plays, but uh, he's not a, a, a bell cow. So I think it's going to be it's interesting. Uh, I think that Montgomery is most try. I mean, in some leagues where uh, you start three receivers and you have running back on lockdown, but your third receiver spot is kind of – uh, in flux, he might be a great PPR guy to plug in there because he's going to uh, get a lot of bunnies. You know, he's going to rack up those uh, sort of cheap PPR points and 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 maybe some uh, a fair amount of rushing yards. But uh, yeah, they're going to bring in Janice uh, at the same time. He's going to be back on the field and get people uh, excited again potentially about the big plays there. Whoa, 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 whoa. Please, 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 please. This can't be a Jeff Janis show. Right. We're not sure if Devontae Adams is going to play. He practiced with a non-contact jersey. He could be cleared and play. We don't know. I'm not going to speculate. I don't know. It's too much, John. It's too much for me to handle right now. I'm trying to wrap my head around the backfield. If you make Janice the number three wide receiver, my head's going to explode. Just for my own sanity, please, let's just cordon off Jeff Janice and put him off to the side for a moment. Here's how I see the Green Bay Packers backfield shaking out, assuming Eddie Lacy lands on the IR, because I think that's where he's headed. Ty Montgomery's best role in an NFL offense is playing running back. He's not an NFL wide receiver. What was his yards per reception at Stanford? 12.8. Very close to the line of scrimmage. Not an explosive downfield threat four five five forty and he's not particularly tall so he's a guy as a wide receiver but at six foot 215 he has an inordinately high bmi for a wide receiver he's built like a running back i think that ty montgomery could become the theoretic of the green bay packers offense i think that the green bay packers backfield is going to look a lot like the Detroit backfield, where you have Ty Montgomery playing 50% of the snaps in all passing situations, hurry up offense, 
they're going to have Ty Montgomery in the game. They're going to want to have him in the backfield or have him go in motion and run a running back route out of the slot. Either way, I think they're going to want to have Ty Montgomery in a satellite back role for the rest of the season. That's what I expect, and that's why I'm spending a lot more to try to acquire Ty Montgomery than Niall Davis or Don Jackson. Now, assuming Ty Montgomery plays a theoretic role, what's left? A 45% opportunity share is left because, as you mentioned, none of these guys that we're talking about will end up getting the goal line carries. Those are probably going to go to Ripkowski. So if Ripkowski's getting the goal line carries and the short yardage work, Ty Montgomery's catching most of the passes out of the backfield and getting a handful of carries in up-tempo situations, then the the between-the-tackles work will likely fall to Niall Davis because Niall Davis is the only running back left on the roster with any kind of size. He's 5'10", 227. The nice thing about Niall Davis is, like someone like Latavius Murray, for example, when there's a hole, he can explode through it and exploit it and give you a long run. 4-3-7-40. Niall Davis has a 124.5, 99th percentile speed score on playerprofiler.com. A 141.2 spark score is 98th percentile. He is a size speed phenom, and putting him in that Green Bay offense coming from Kansas City, an anemic offense, is exciting for anyone that's been following the Niall Davis career. This is all we've asked for, is for him to get an opportunity in an efficient offense, and finally, that opportunity has arrived. So I'm buying Ty Montgomery, I'm stashing Niall Davis, but I'm not as excited as other people are about Don Jackson. I keep hearing that Don Jackson is the back to own, that the Green Bay Packers love Don Jackson. And Don Jackson does look a lot like Sharkhandrick West. He has great burst and average speed on playerprofiler.com. But Sharkhandrick West was only a factor after Jamal Charles went down and before the emergence of Spencer Ware. So, hmm, I'm not sure that having Sharkhandrick West's athletic profile is enough to ascend to the number one position on the running back depth chart. I don't see that happening for Don Jackson. He has zero snaps in his NFL career. Niall Davis, in three games as a starter for the Kansas City Chiefs, he posted 318 yards and three touchdowns. He averaged over 100 yards and a touchdown in three games as a starter for the Chiefs. That, to me, is a much bigger indicator than an anecdote from a beat reporter that the Green Bay coaches like a guy on the practice squad. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't pay too much attention to that type of coach speak and chatter. They really like him, John. They really like this Don Jackson kid. You should pick him up instead of the guy with actual NFL experience and RB1 weeks on his resume. Right. They both have a better resume. This guy, he definitely, as far as I'm concerned, he might as well be a baseball pitcher. Uh, you know, that name, that's that would have been my guess not uh, before today. Um, and I, I do know a lot of uh, Brandon Wilds and you know running backs on the fringes of the league and on practice squads, and we all follow those guys. So I, I, you know, not to be snobby, but I do take it to mean something that I've never heard this guy's name before. 
Someone should tell Don Jackson this. Someone needs to tell him that there's very little chance he's going to make anything of himself in the league if John Evans hasn't heard of him. Um, not not that I know every player, but it does mean something to me. And, and again, this offense is not the Dallas Cowboys offensive line. This is not a running team. It's it's not a situation that's tailor-made for that type of offense. And it is intriguing to think if they might adapt and run you know, something like a, a, a Jim Bob Cooter uh, short passing game with uh, with Montgomery. And, and as you alluded to at Stanford, I mean, that was his game. He was a he looked like a running back. If you if you didn't know what film you were watching, you would you would have assumed that he was a running back in a lot of plays. So I, it's a it's a it's a great fit, uh, you know, for that type of role. And I am kind of excited to see it. I just I don't know if Mike McCarthy you know, the play calling has been dubious. They, the way they've uh, adapted to their circumstances since Jordy Nelson went down the first time is, is, doesn't fill me with confidence. I am, I'm a little worried that they're going to be able to pull this together. I mean, and, and especially on short notice, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that this Thursday night, tomorrow night, they're going to come out and have the Ty Montgomery offense, uh, you know, clicking on all cylinders against the Bears team that has been rather scrappy lately defensively. The Bears don't give up an inordinate number of fantasy points to opposing running backs. And the Packers offensive line, 87.7 run blocking efficiency on playerprofiler.com. That's 24th in the league. So well below average run blocking efficiency. They're not a good running team. That's Anyone that watches Packers games knows Packers aren't a good running team. So chasing the between the tackles grinder in Niall Davis or Don Jackson isn't a high upside proposition anyway. However, that's why you want Ty Montgomery, who's going to be on the field in passing situations. That's what the Packers will be doing for the rest of the season. Passing and passing and passing and passing, and Montgomery will be heavily involved in that phase. The question is, when will the fantasy platforms change his designation from wide receiver to running back? I think in 2017, when we're drafting, we will all be drafting Ty Montgomery, the running back, and Ty Montgomery, the receiver, will be a distant memory. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that we obviously are going to have to wait until next year. They never change classifications mid-season. But, uh, they don't? Uh, not to my knowledge. Not any of the major platforms. What? No. Oh, God, I didn't know that. They consider that cheating. I just spent my entire free agent budget on Ty Montgomery, but I went zero RB, so I'm totally stacked at wide receiver. I won't be able to play him, John. I spent my entire budget on him. Tell me they're going to change his designation to running back. <laughs> Maybe on Flea Flicker or something. I don't know. They're not? They're not going to change it? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Shit. Fuck, God. Really? Well... You know, you can uh, oh. you can make some trades. Uh, that's all I can tell you, Matt. Damn it! <laughs> Either way, whether it's Ty Montgomery, whether it's Niall Davis, is it Montgomery or Montgomery? How do you say his last name? I would just say Montgomery. You know, just say it kind of quick, just kind of, you know, breeze right by it. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> Montgomery! <clears throat> whether it's Ty Montgomery or Niall Davis... <laughs> And it's not going to be Don Jackson. Let me say this again. It's not going to be Don Jackson. Don Jackson posted a 4.7 yards per carry at Nevada with a below average college dominator and a mere 4.1% college target share. 
so he wasn't active in any phase of the offense. And when they did give him the ball at Nevada against Mountain Whack competition, he posted a yards per carry below five. 13th percentile. So Niall Davis and Tom Montgomery have nothing to worry about in Don Jackson. He is a camp body that they're calling up because they need bodies. But it is a running back by committee, John. It is. It's a running back by committee. And even though he'll never qualify for the running back position, and Niall Davis has big playability every time he touches the ball, they're still in a committee. So I've been trained to believe that if a running back is in a committee, he's useless. Isn't that right, John? Mm -hmm. Well, it was when half of the league was not in a committee. But now when there's like three or four guys who aren't, we just have to adapt and roll with that and hope for a guy that has a relatively stable role, a predictable role, and one in which uh, you can expect with reasonable certainty that that role will be valuable this week. I mean, it, it's become a lot more week to week in, as far as uh, predicting usage and predicting game flow, which we never want to do, but uh, we can use Vegas over-unders and things like that to try to uh, figure out how it might turn out. It's very frustrating. I mean, I'm the only upside about it that we were promised in some way by coaches or the cognoscenti was that uh, guys won't get hurt and they won't uh, wear down as much. And I don't know that I can point to an example of that being the case uh, in recent memory where, oh, well, that guy never would have made it 16 games. Uh, but luckily they were you know, rotating him. It's uh, it, it's not good, but at the same time, it's it is, and it's a relatively level playing field. It's interesting that it elevates the value of those David Johnson, uh, you know, the Le'Veon Bells of the world, where you know they really are tremendously valuable because Julio Jones is going to get you know bottled up two out of three weeks, and he might have two hundred yards in the in the middle week there. But uh, it's just a lot more possible to shut down a receiver uh, than one of these guys that just gets all of the touches and is phenomenally talented in a good situation. Uh, you know, that is a rare certainty and confidence as a fantasy owner to roll out David Johnson every week. So uh, it, it's it is what it is, man. I, I, I don't love it, but we just have to roll with it. Yeah, you dropped an is what it is cliche. You had to do that to me. <laughs> Before the cliche, I do love your tone. I love pretentious John Evans. <laughs> I love that. Well, if most of the league wasn't in a committee, I might agree with you. I love that. <laughs> I want more of that. The rest of the show... I want to increase the amplitude of the John Evans pretension. I just we need more of that on the show. That's my goal is to squeeze as much of that out of you as possible. One example I can give you of a player that wasn't capable of handling the full load, Theo Riddick. The moment they tried to give Theo Riddick an opportunity share above 60, he got hurt. Like, immediately. Automatically. It was just, it was like, they flipped a switch, and boom, he went down. The moment they tried to get more out of that Theo Riddick slight frame than he was meant to carry. He came to mind because we were just talking about the similarities between the Green Bay backfield and the Detroit backfield. 
You also talked about injuries. And in talking about the Devontae Adams injury, the concussion, when he sustained that concussion, I thought to myself, when was the last time a player sustained a concussion in the NFL? Remember, last year, the year before, there were three or four concussions per week to skill position players that were fantasy relevant. And this year, it seems like there's been fewer concussions. And then I was reminded of the Cole Beasley hit from earlier in the year. Do you remember the hit where Cole Beasley was hit in the waist and he went airborne and he went backwards five yards? Mm -hmm. So I recalled the Cole Beasley hit, a hit using perfect technique. On ESPN, they would have featured that hit in the knocked out. What is that segment? He was fucked up. What was that segment they do? Knock the fuck out! What's the segment they do on ESPN? Jacked up! That's what it is. Jacked up! He was jacked up. And those jacked up segments that the big sports media platforms do always bother me because a lot of times I'm thinking how many brain cells were just killed in that collision. But the Cole Beasley hit was different. He kept playing, no concussion. So far, no worse for wear, despite what looked like a devastating hit. And so I pulled some data on playerprofiler.com. If you scroll down on any given player page, you'll see there's a medical history report with that player's full injury history. And so we have a database of injuries behind the scenes. I sorted the database, pulled a report, and among skill position players last year, just skill position players, now looking at linebackers, 69 concussions in 2015, including preseason and the playoffs. This year, only 25. Now, we're already more than halfway through October, and this includes all of preseason. We're trending towards at least 10 less concussions by skill position players this year. We're on pace for at least a 15% decrease in concussions to skill position players. That is a bit of good news. It seems like every time a news report comes out about the NFL, it's bad news. More concussions, more brain damage, more off-the-field issues. Here's some good news for once. Well, you know, Matt, that's why the ratings are down, my friend. Trying to be pretentious for you. Uh, (laughs) No, that's very good news. (laughs) No, 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 no. Forced pretension, bad. Natural pretension, good. (laughs) All right, well, it'll just have to be organic then. Yes. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, clearly there's been some high-profile concussions like Cam Newton's and Jordan Reed, but, uh, you know, statistically it might be uh, it might be that there's some changes to how guys are using their tackling form to avoid those impacts. It, it, it could be that we're making some progress as far as coaching it out of the game. I don't know. I think that the changes implemented at the top at the NFL level have trickled down the technique being taught at the lower levels, high school, college, less head hunting. Mm -hmm. Also, the NCA implemented a pretty strict targeting rule, which is much more strict than the rules in place against NFL defenders, where you're immediately kicked out of the game if if the referee believes that you intended helmet-to-helmet contact with your tackle. So I think that the NCAA targeting rule is succeeding in changing the behavior, at least on the margins. Most of the time, I hear people complaining about it. My key defender just got kicked out. That wasn't fair, but 
I think there's a greater good happening here. No doubt about it. So while concussions are down, good news for the NFL. On the other hand, there's bad news. Aaron Rodgers is in the league. I think Aaron Rodgers needs to go away. I know that we need good quarterbacks. I know that the quarterbacks that that perform at a high level are in short supply. We need as many of them as possible. But I would be okay if Aaron Rodgers just retired tomorrow and just got out of my life forever. I enjoy your pretension. But when you are publicly condescending to my favorite player, Jeff Janis, <laughs> on a weekly basis, eventually, I just get tired of it. You're not as good as you think you are. Everybody knows it now. Look at the advanced metrics. They're damning. I now watch Packers games hoping that Aaron Rodgers is humbled, hoping that he goes 10 for 29, and then, of course, the Packers are forced to play Jeff Janis in a Hail Mary situation. <laughs> Well, do you think Aaron Rodgers is a douche or do you like the guy? I kind of like the guy. I mean, I Oh, come yeah, on. Yeah, I'm sorry. The commercials, the discount double check got old uh quickly. Um, but uh I kind of liked his swagger. He's a dick. I liked watching him play and just that sort of He was also one of the things little body languagey things I noticed. He would chat with the defenders between plays and and just kind of seem really relaxed and kind of, you know, exchange a few words. It wasn't tense. Too relaxed. He would kind of smile. Yeah, but that was like part of his his thing was that he was on top of the world. You couldn't rattle him. And that is gone. That is what is bothering me about him now is that he seems shaken. His confidence is shaken. He's a little more skittish. He he, you know, he, he's not Brock Osweiler, but he sometimes seems to, you know, force throws before the pressure gets there. The seeing the ghosts, you know, it's just not the same. And I don't like it. I don't think it's good for the league and certainly not good for our fantasy teams. I like it. <laughs> and whenever the super arrogant player starts to struggle, they're more apt to spiral than the more humble player who knows it's just a matter of time. Whereas the super arrogant guy, Aaron Rodgers, he demeans others because he himself is insecure. And when you have an insecure athlete start to struggle, there's a chance he spirals. But there's one way that he can pull himself out of it. Go to Mike McCarthy's office and say, we need to make sure our best playmaker is on the field. Don Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) Don Jackson. Action Jackson. We need to get Don Jackson in there. He's going to bail us out. I'm waiting patiently for Aaron Rodgers and the rest of the Green Bay coaches finally come to Jesus. Come to Janice. And realize having Jeff Janice on the field gives their team the best chance to win. And it's embarrassing that the Green Bay Packers have not realized it. But the Chicago Bears realized it very quickly with Cameron Meredith. Cameron Meredith has two starts on his resume. And I get constant questions on Twitter. Who should I start? Alshon Jeffrey or Cameron Meredith in week seven? Who are you starting? Cameron Meredith or Alshon Jeffrey? Well, Alshon's finally off of the injury report, which is very uh, reassuring. And I think that Meredith will continue to benefit from the presence of Jeffrey. I mean, I don't think if Jeffrey was out, uh, it would be great for Cameron Meredith. He might get 25 targets, but, you know, he's going to catch less than half of them for not that many yards in that situation. Jeffrey's going to make it easier for Meredith, but I think he's going to end up fully healthy. He's just 
so much more talented that he's going to start doing more with his targets than he has been lately. Jeffrey, this is, and I, I don't think this is even a question in my mind, but I, I think this is a great matchup. And, you know, because of the fact this week against the Packers, so many defensive backs are hurt for green Bay that they're both going to romp and you'll be happy. And Brian Hoyer might even throw a couple of touchdown passes. They're both going to romp. I love that phrase. <laughs> Do you know who Jeff Janis's best comparable player is on playerprofiler.com? Jordy Nelson? Alshon Jeffrey. Oh, interesting. Alshon Jeffrey is one of the most talented wide receivers in the league, and he's faced the most difficult pass defenses slash shadow cornerbacks so far this season. If he wasn't facing the Houston pass defense and A.J. Boyle, he was facing the Indianapolis Colts defense, whose only asset is Vontae Davis. Or he's facing the Jacksonville Jaguars defense, whose best player is Prince Amukamor. So now this is the first time that Alshon Jeffrey gets to face a pass defense and or an individual outside cornerback who's not elite. So this is the week he breaks out. Book it. And we talked earlier about stashes. There are two other size speed phenoms, not as good as Alshon Jeffrey, but big athletic specimens. Unlike Alshon Jeffrey, who we're sure is going to break out in week seven, I have no idea when Doriel Green Beckham or Brashad Perriman is going to break out. If you had to guess, which of those two will break out first? Give me DGB. Uh, I think that I feel a little better about the passing game. Flacco's been terrible. He got an MRI today. I don't know the results of that, but he's been taking a pounding and throwing the ball for only a very few yards per attempt. It's just not, I mean, obviously they just made a coordinator change, so the offense may change uh, under uh, the great Marty Morningweg. Um, <laughs> oh yes you'll fix Flacco <laughs> well I mean the good thing about those stone age kind of offenses is that it's run the ball run the ball run the ball throw the ball deep on play action so maybe he will open it up rather than the Trestman West Coast offense dink and dunk kind of a thing so there's there's some chance of it and I, I liked Perriman coming out I mean I think that uh, both of them are talented players and I think both of them will hopefully continue to take strides but i've seen more from doriel green beckham on the field so far than i have from perriman and i think that the offense is 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 just clicking a lot more than baltimore so while you have jordan matthews drawing targets there's not a ton of other competition there whereas i think when steve smith comes back you know he's definitely got a gravitational pull that should keep perriman as more of an ancillary option I think Mike Wallace also ensures that Brashad Perriman will remain an ancillary option. They're redundant assets, and Mike Wallace is the established starter, and Brashad Perriman is the number three or number four receiver, depending on where you slot in Kamar Aiken and how healthy Steve Smith is. Doro Green-Beckham, on the other hand, has a unique skill set. Nelson Aguilar is redundant with Jordan Matthews. Nelson Aguilar is an NFL flanker. He's not going to be a successful, productive outside receiver in the NFL. It's not going to happen. So eventually the Eagles are going to realize this 
and they're going to play Doro Green Beckham heavy snaps on the outside, and then he'll break out. I think Doro Green Beckham has a better chance to break out this year because at least Doro Green Beckham played in 2015. So he has that experience. And in 2015, in only 67 targets, he led the NFL in contested catch rate. While his actual catch rate was low, 47%, his contested catch rate was around 90%. So in contested situations, he's a ball winner. John. He wins balls. We know that about Doro Green Beckham. I don't know anything about Brashad Perriman. Brashad Perriman is a complete enigma to me. Doro Green Beckham has a clearer path to playing time. He's less of an enigma. So I'm going Doro Green Beckham. I agree with you. The third option that I didn't even give you is Jalen Strong. Jalen Strong is a trap. Suckers were trapped by him last week, played him in DFS, he flamed out. Jalen Strong will remain a trap for the next two or three years. Fantasy enthusiasts will be chasing that athleticism, chasing that size-adjusted athleticism, and it's never going to pay off. You agree? Absolutely. I moved him in my dynasty league this offseason because, I mean, you also have the uh, field concerns with him and he's changing his body before the season, which usually, unless you're Le'Veon Bell, is more of a sign of desperation as you're trying to get your career back on track by gaining or losing weight. He's made some splash plays, but yeah, I don't think he's fundamentally sound. And DGB, you know, there's such a value to what you're saying the the jump ball winner you know the guy that can out muscle and out body people in the end zone you're going to have so many red zone attempts that he's going to be better at than i don't think of zach Ertz like that i don't think they don't have a a tight end that really has that skill set so as he continues to refine his game he could yeah absolutely be the go-to guy in the paint which is valuable in and of itself but i think there's other signs that he's developing a more uh, well-rounded game we're speaking the same language with doro green beckham on the other hand jalen strong has historically underperformed his athleticism and then last year if he were better houston wouldn't have drafted will fuller But Houston drafted Will Fuller. Will Fuller is an NFL caliber playmaker. DeAndre Hopkins, clearly an NFL caliber playmaker. Jalen Strong, so far this season, 5.5 yards per target. That's 128th in the league. He's not an NFL playmaker, but because he has a few touchdowns on his resume, Cody Latimer doesn't even have that. So the Cody Latimer truthers have slinked away, but the Jalen Strong truthers remain. You saw them come out of hiding in DFS last week. But when I look at the Jalen Strong player profiler page, you see that average college dominator. If you have a 1027, 92nd percentile catch radius, if you're 6'2", 217, going up against college cornerbacks, and you can't have an above average dominator, something's not clicking. So we like to talk about DFS on this show. We like to talk about redraft. In Dynasty, Jalen Strong is not a stash. He's a sell. No doubt. Now, I mentioned Cody Latimer. No one's stashing him anymore because he's been usurped by Benny Fowler. But I just saw Brad Evans from Yahoo tweet that a source, I don't know who this is, but he mentions a source close to the Broncos. I do not like to relay anecdotal secondhand source talk, 
but in this particular case, I will because I practice confirmation bias in front of this microphone. Brad Evans' source close to the Broncos was not talking about Cody Latimer. He was talking about Devontae Booker. And the word out of Denver is, I've never used that phrase on this show. Over 200 episodes, I've never said the word out of City X. I've never said the word out of City X. But the word out of Denver is, Devontae Booker will get significant run this week. hey Are you excited? Absolutely. Absolutely. He's uh, he's the favorite of the regime. I mean, they tried to run C.J. Anderson out of town, basically, and then grudgingly retained him. Devontae Booker was handpicked, and he's he's shown you know a definite ability to function in this offense. And even though he's young and he's inexperienced, and the offensive line has been a little shaky recently. Uh, they they benefited from some cupcake matches matchups early on that made themselves and their play look more dominant than it actually is. But I think they're they can get the running game going again in Denver, and he's going to get that opportunity. I wouldn't say that I'm concerned about his knee. I'm not concerned necessarily about his pass protection. And I would say that he's making better decisions with the ball in his hands. So CJ is going to be there until he's hurt. I think that, you know, he's not going to be completely relegated to a, uh, a bench role. But I think that, you know, Booker will kind of become a plus Ronnie Hillman in the weeks to come. And then when CJ inevitably is injured, um, then it will become the Devontae Booker show. That's my prediction at this point. You mentioned Ronnie Hillman. Ronnie Hillman was the satellite back for the Broncos last year. Devontae Booker is a phenomenal pass catcher. 14.3% college target share at Utah, where he was just a dominant producer. CJ Anderson couldn't supplant EC Safili at Cal. Meanwhile, Devontae Booker rolling up an over 40% college dominator, 86th percentile. What do we love on this show? Big running backs with great hands. The David Johnson corollary. Give me the big running back with the great hands. Well, Devontae Booker's 220 pounds, and he runs great routes, and he has great hands. So give me that running back over the C.J. Anderson archetype all day long. My only disappointment with Devontae Booker is that because of the knee injury, we don't have additional workout metrics. We know he has an above-average speed score. I'd love to see his burst score. I'd love to see his agility score because when you watch him, it appears he has great burst and he has great agility. He could have incredible athleticism, but he was never tested, so we can only watch him play on the field. And when you watch him play, he clearly looks more explosive than C.J. Anderson. Agreed. Another player that I love, essentially the Devontae Booker of wide receivers, Quincy Anunua. But Quincy Anunua has been struggling lately. His target share was in the top 30 in the league as the number three wide receiver early in the season, but his target share has plummeted. His fantasy output has plummeted. Are you dropping Quincy Anunua? I generally am. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, Geno Smith is not going to rescue this passing game. He has he has no pocket awareness. He makes the he has the decision making of a toddler. It's it's a going to be a, a, this dumpster fire is let's pull the alarm, stop, drop and roll. It is an absolute burning building at this point. And so I'm sorry, I don't see that Quincy. He hasn't stepped up without 
Eric Decker, and I, it's hard to predict it happening now. I think that there's better players out there for fantasy purposes at this moment in time. Nah. He hasn't, has he? Yeah. He hasn't stepped up after Decker went down. He hasn't had a good game since Eric Decker went on the IR. You're right. You're right. You're right. Okay. Happy thoughts. Kenny Britt on pace for 1,300 yards. Did you see this coming? <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> It's, you know, I, I loved Kenny Britt back in the Tennessee days. Uh, I definitely, you know, have had my shares of Kenny Britt over the years. And he, he's clearly diminished physically. He's more in that sort of cagey elder statesman part of his career. Uh, he, he's got a decent PPR floor. So I think that you're going to probably want to play matchups with him moving forward. I don't think they're going to uh, open up this passing game successfully against more than half of the defenses in the league. I think that, you know, Case Keenum has benefited from some pretty weak secondaries, but he's got to throw the ball to somebody, you know, it, it, nobody, none of the heralded rookies, whether they're uh, good Mike Thomas or uh, <laughs> Pharaoh Cooper or Tyler Higby or and none of those guys are, are ready for prime time. And, Quick has shown flashes, but, you know, Britt has the trust of his quarterback. So I would say, yeah, he's shaping up to be an every week uh, PPR wide receiver three with upside. And you referred to Kenny Britt as <laughs> quote unquote cagey. I noticed that. Run the breaking news. Kenny Britt is 28 years old. Tell me you didn't know that. You know, he's always been, every time you look at Kenny Britt's age, you're surprised. Like, it, it's always been true. You know, it used to be, oh, he's only 22 years old. He's been in the league for, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He yeah. just and, turned I mean, 28, that, actually. That's definitely full maturity at this point. But, you know, he you, you would think he was older with the number of years he's logged in the National Football League. And he looks like an old man, but he plays like a young man. So I'll take the guy that looks like an old man, but plays like a young man all day. Looking at the Tampa Bay wide receiver core after Mike Evans, it's very nebulous. Their old man in the receiving core, Vincent Jackson, tore his ACL again. His career is likely over. I'm going to call that right now. The wide receivers behind Mike Evans include Adam Humphreys, Cecil Shorts, and Lewis Murphy. Who you got? Well, Lewis Murphy and Cecil Shorts the third at least have given us some quality NFL tape in the past. Maybe years ago, especially with Murphy. I haven't seen much from Humphreys that makes me think he's going to be dangerous. I don't think he's going to benefit from better cornerbacks on him that's for sure i don't think he's gonna work outside if they send him out there i took a flyer on him in the uh, scott fishbowl a couple weeks ago and you know he's he immediately went back to the waiver wire after a couple of weeks i mean it's also this this offense is in a state of transition the Doug Martin injury isn't going to help, but they clearly are trying to get back to a running game. They're not trusting Jameis Winston as much with uh, to make things happen because, frankly, you know he's he's been a bit of a disaster. So I think that you know they're going to still throw the ball because they have a bad defense. John, John, let me interrupt. Here's how we can fix you. What you should have done there is just said he's been a disaster. Don't add the quite frankly. I don't want the softeners. <laughs> no softeners. Just straight <laughs> condescension. 
Hit me, John. No more softeners. <laughs> Hit me hard. Well, <laughs> I just think that this this team is in somewhat of disarray on the defensive side of the ball. They're going to be throwing. They're going to be trailing. They don't. I mean, especially if uh, Martin is not coming back, I don't think they're going to turn into a smash mouth offense overnight, exotic or otherwise. Yeah. Uh, the offensive line is not great. So I, I think that you're going to get some value. I think this is sort of a whack-a-mole situation in the sense that if all three guys end up being healthy um, and, and nobody really emerges you know, in practice, I think they're all going to get run and they're all going to have like the odd week where it's kind of their turn, but nobody really emerges. If you want anyone here other than Mike Evans, I think it is Cameron Brake. Yes, Cameron Brait becomes a top 10 tight end only because tight ends 6 through 10 have not been impressive this year. So Cameron Brait has a low bar to climb over. A very low bar. But I believe it. An old lady could limbo under that bar. But I believe it's important to try to solve this Tampa Bay number two wide receiver conundrum. The reason? Tampa Bay's run blocking efficiency is 53.5. That's 31st in the league on playerprofiler.com. They can't run, John. They can't run at all. Their defense isn't good. So if you can't run the ball and you have a bad defense, Jameis Winston's going to be throwing the ball 40 times plus per game. Those targets can't all go to Mike Evans. Mike Evans is the number one wide receiver in fantasy right now. PPR fantasy points per game, number one in the league, Mike Evans. And I don't see that changing given the volume that we're projecting for Mike Evans given the state of the offensive line and the defense. But we need to figure out who this number two wide receiver is going to be because that player will absolutely be fantasy viable on volume alone. And I think it could be Cecil Shorts. Cecil Shorts last season, when healthy, was posting double-digit fantasy points per game. We lamented Jalen Strong not seeing the field as a rookie. The reason why Jalen Strong couldn't get on the field is because Cecil Shorts was not allowing it. When he was on the field last season, Cecil Shorts posted 10.1 fantasy points per game. While DeAndre Hopkins was hogging all the targets. Now put him on the Buccaneers and make him the number two option. He's been cleared to practice. He had a severe hamstring injury. What's new? He's going to get hurt again. I'm sure of it. But fortunately, it probably won't be a concussion. So my educated guess for who will be the number two wide receiver for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in terms of target share moving forward, I've got Cecil Shorts. Okay. Well, I, I think you said some operative words there. Uh, until he's hurt or when healthy, he's X, Y, and Z. Yes, John. I mean, Arian Foster looks at him and says, oh, you know, what? how do you train, man? You need to change your diet or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he's this a wreck. <laughs> so I think like from a DFS perspective. Turning up the knobs <laughs> on the condescension. <laughs> I love it, John. I love it. Hit me again. But Cecil Shorts is like not on the injury report, and you need a DFS flyer starting for that week. But know that by the end of the second quarter, he might not be in there, but hopefully he'll come through for you before that happens, before he gets injured. Another wide receiver core that's in flux, the Browns. It looks like Terrell Pryor is going to miss week seven with a strained hamstring. The only other outside receiver on the roster is Ricardo Lewis. He has a cool name. Do you like him? I like the name. 
definitely Ricardo. You know, he sounds very like a he's a salsa instructor or something. <laughs> anything else? You got anything else? I got any, any actual information about his fantasy potential or uh, not really? <laughs> yes, move. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I love that. No, <laughs> moving on. I love. Let's move on to the next guy. Okay. Of course. No, do you really have anything? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, he wasn't somebody that I was uh, excited to roster in my dynasty drafts. I mean, I don't think I ended up even really considering him in an eight round uh, IDP draft. Um, Oof, really? Yeah, yeah, I've got a couple of those leagues. But uh, no, I'm just saying for him to not be considered. Mm, no, nah, I mean, I know he's got the athletic measurables. I mean, you, you, you really he does. I'm sure you've got that information close at hand. but you know this offense it's amazing how they keep manufacturing these receivers uh out of nowhere i mean i guess they're doing something well with their scouting department um but you know the the big physical athletic uh downfield threats in the in the vein of josh gordon and uh and the great Terrell Flyer, as I was calling him before the season, oh. ended up on a lot of my my teams. So Terrell Flyer. Yep, yep. This is uh, this hurts that he's uh, missing some time. But the defense is terrible, and he's gotten on the field. You know, he's posted some some numbers in the last few weeks: five for sixty-five against uh, Tennessee last week. So I think there's some you know deep league appeal here, but um, I'm not. You know, I, I think Coleman's coming back. I, hopefully, Pryor's not going to be gone long. They still have the great baby hawk in there to be a reliable safety valve. So I'm not, I'm not terribly excited. No. Unfortunately, while Ricardo Lewis does have a 118.3 SparkX score on PlayerProfiler.com, that's 84th percentile. He's an incredible athlete, great catch radius, 10-13, 72nd percentile. His best comparable player, Cody Latimer, and it's a fairly close comparable. I can't believe the thematic thread running through the show has somehow, some way, been Cody Latimer. But it's true. It has been. The Cody Latimer show. I think you should title it that and people, it'll just sell like hotcakes. <laughs> I can't put Cody Latimer in the show title because it won't get any clicks. <laughs> no, maybe Jalen Strong. How about that? But Not even Jalen Strong. I, I think we have a show somewhere. Jalen Strong neck tattoo. I don't think it went <laughs> Just a bad idea. This was before we started optimizing for clicks. Not that we do that. We would never do that. But Ricardo Lewis's college dominator is above average, but it should be significantly better. Ricardo Lewis dominated the receiving yards at Auburn in his final year, but he had an inordinately low touchdown total, which depressed his college dominator. If his touchdowns were in line with his yards, Ricardo Lewis would have an impressive college dominator, and he wouldn't be comparable to Cody Latimer. So, That's the nugget to keep in mind when evaluating the Ricardo Lewis profile. If Terrell Pryor sits, I'm stashing Ricardo Lewis and potentially streaming him in my leagues that start eight wide receivers. We haven't talked about quarterbacks at all. I want a quarterback take. I had your co-host on this show, Liz Loza, a few months ago, and we talked at length about Brock Osweiler. And we talked about how bad Brock Osweiler is, and this idea that he was ever going to be good in Houston was a fairy tale. And where are we? Brock Osweiler outside the top 
40 in multiple advanced efficiency metrics. Last week, Brock Osweiler threw three quarters, 11 for 22, 89 yards, one interception, a 41.7 passer rating. In the fourth quarter and overtime, Brock Osweiler, 14 for 17, 180 yards, two touchdowns, and a 143.8 passer rating, showing you that any quarterback can get hot for a quarter. Last season, Brian Hoyer was the quarterback of the Houston Texans, and he kept fantasy assets, or at least (laughs) DeAndre Hopkins, uh, quite viable. He kept the offense afloat, and for a while, he was, you know, a a good streamer. Lo and behold, this year, who is keeping an offense afloat and a good streamer? It's not Brock Osweiler. It's Brian Hoyer. How much are the Houston Brass kicking themselves right now? And at least they have to... on some level look at the results uh of last year and what's happening now and say oh oy vey who did we give all this money to it's not good do you think the houston gm hate watches chicago bears games (laughs) there's no doubt about it i have no doubt that he does it when when you can struggle against the uh mighty indianapolis colts secondary for most of the game and just finally you know make a few plays at the end and i know that will fuller was out but it's it's really bleak for for osweiler right now and i i think that yeah against like infantile secondaries that just have you know kids back there that don't know what they're doing but due to injuries when you've got will fuller out there he is going to just eat and and he'll drop a half of them but osweiler you know when he's remotely accurate there'll be some big fantasy splash plays and we've seen it already this year we'll see more of it but as a a sign of his development as a quarterback this is this is not good and and the tape wasn't great last year it's it's worse now so there were there were there were optimists out there about his his progression and i i think i would like to know what they're saying now because it, it it's not looking good there has never been any data that suggests we should be optimistic about brock osweiler going all the way back to his time at arizona state now this year deep ball completion percentage 26.7 percent that's 27th in the league completion percentage under pressure for brock osweiler 21 percent outside the top 30 if you put pressure on brock osweiler he's not going to throw a completion if he tries to throw it deep under pressure forget it and this is with deandre hopkins on your team who catches anything in his catch radius and will fuller one of the truly special deep ball playmakers in the nfl still a 26.7 percent deep ball completion percentage he's never going to be good if you're a fan of the houston texans you're going to be in quarterback purgatory for a long time and if you own brock osweiler in dynasty you should be trying to unload him after he did have one good quarter and a half on national television <laughs> In that game, he did feed someone I think is interesting. C.J. Fedorowicz. I think it's wheels up for C.J. Fedorowicz. Do you? <laughs> well, he's not getting all of the snaps. He's still, you know, somewhat of a part-time player, but he's carved out a, a nice role in the passing game. He's definitely the kind of two-way tight end that will be on the field. You know, he can block, and he he, he showed at Iowa that he's a 
more he's got sneaky athleticism you know he can get open and make plays and you saw that on national tv so i like him i think that you know he's definitely somebody i've been picking up this week when i'm where i'm struggling and just throwing darts at tight end you know i think that bill o'brien has traditionally favored tight ends in his offense it hasn't come to pass yet but Fedorowitz, you know he's a young guy we all know unless you're named hunter henry it takes a while for tight ends to develop their game and i think he's he's had a little breakthrough here, and I do think it's legit. Hunter Henry, by the way, the number one tight end now on the Roto Underworld Dynasty tight end rankings. Playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. He surpassed Rob Gronkowski, Jordan Reed, and Travis Kelsey in the last couple weeks because he's been super productive and he's super young. That's what you want in Dynasty. Look at CJ Fedorowicz. 66265. He has all the traits we're looking for in a fantasy tight end. He's going to be on the field in every game situation. Goal line heavy package. He's in the game. Hurry up offense. He's in the game. That's the difference between the move tight ends and the every down tight ends. The every down tight ends can be top five fantasy assets. Travis Kelsey, Rob Gronkowski. More often than not, the move tight ends are relegated to low-end tight end one status unless their name is Jordan Reed. What else does C.J. Fedorowicz have on his profile that we covet? Size-adjusted agility, 1138 agility score, 76th percentile at 6'6", 265. That's incredible. And he was a significant college producer at Iowa, as you mentioned, 21.6% college dominator. Just turned 25 years old. This is the age that tight ends typically break out. Most tight ends, as you mentioned, are not Hunter Henry. They take multiple seasons to percolate and finally ascend. And I think we're seeing it now. C.J. Fedorowicz checks all the boxes. He finally had his breakout game. Six receptions, 85 yards and a touchdown. Don't wait. The moment a tight end with this profile flashes, you need to roster him in every league, especially Dynasty. Uh, absolutely couldn't agree more by the way though you know I, this is kind of random and i'm going to throw it at you but you know talking about quarterbacks and what does the what are the narratives and what does the tape show and we we it can change like i was just reflecting on this today and philip rivers do you remember like that two or three years where we were all leaving philip rivers for dead as a fantasy asset, it seemed like every week he was in a primetime game, at least he was fumbling the snap or, you know, throwing that that brutal pick that broke the, the back of his team and then also just not being any good for fantasy. And like he's now had two or three really strong years, at least early in the season before things, you know, inevitably fall apart because it's San Diego and they must be cursed. But like it, these things do turn Tom Brady. I mean, before we're on to Cincinnati, the dirt was thrown on his grave. So this is not, I don't bring this up so much as an argument for Brock Osweiler, but just that, you know, we, and I'm definitely speaking for myself here, I don't know what's going to happen with quarterbacks like Dak Prescott. There could be one major uh, you, you know, Tyron Smith gets hurt, some major uh, shift in the quality of the offensive line, and suddenly he's not making those brilliant decisions that we're also impressed by. Who knows what's going to happen with that position? It's it's fascinating how delicate the balance has to be to produce great quarterback play. We need to know what we know, and we need to know what we don't know. 
we don't know how to evaluate quarterbacks nearly as well as we evaluate wide receivers, for example. But we know by now, Phillip Rivers is an elite quarterback. 43,000 career passing yards, a 65% completion percentage, and his TD to interception ratio is 293 to 138. That's an exceptional touchdown to interception ratio over the course of a career. He's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, he doesn't need a ring, I don't think. You know, I would put him in there. He's one of those guys like a Dan Marino that, you know, the the body of the career, the length of time that he's done it. He's a magician. I mean, it, it's fun watching him play. Unlike Eli Manning. He's also the Kenny Britt of quarterbacks. He's only 34 years old. We all think of him as a 38-year-old KG veteran. <laughs> but his arm has many years left on the odometer. Trent Dilfer was recently asked whether he would trade his career and his championship ring for Philip Rivers. And he said flatly, yes. And he admitted that he wasn't responsible for the Super Bowl championship. He was a cog in a machine. He wasn't the reason. And everyone, including himself, knows he wasn't the reason. But he also admitted being envious of Philip Rivers because Philip Rivers has maximized his ability. And Trent Dilfer believes he never maximized his for one reason or another. And the question was pushed even further. Would Eli Manning trade his career for Philip Rivers? Because when you look at the stats, clearly Philip Rivers has been the more prolific passer, has been the better quarterback. And Trent Dilfer argued that Eli Manning would rather have the better numbers than the two Super Bowl championships. This has devolved into very much an arbitrary sports radio discussion. But that is interesting to me that we as fans assume that the Super Bowl championships carry such a disproportionate weight. And they do when we're evaluating players against each other, when we're doing these arbitrary comparisons. But when quarterbacks are comparing themselves to other quarterbacks, the championships mean a lot less. Well, I mean, you have guys like Joe Flacco, where he was really good for a playoff run. And that's really, I mean, you could say that for Eli Manning both times. I mean, they those were great runs by him individually for that period of time. But when you have many countless games where you're not winning the game, you're not making the big plays, you're not uh, generating the highlights and, you know, looking like a, a maestro of your sport. I think that that has to count for something too. Not just that you got hot when your defense was on fire too at the right time and the injuries weren't as bad for your team as they were the, you know, the your main rival during that particular season. We, we should take that into account. It shouldn't all be just the bottom line business. It's the artistry and the ability should also be taken into account. Absolutely. You mentioned there was a narrative street argument against Philip Rivers a few years back. Last week in particular was a great week for narrative street. LaShawn McCoy versus Chip Kelly. LaShawn McCoy, three touchdowns. Narrative street wins. Ben Roethlisberger struggles on the road. I heard that. And what happens? He goes to Miami, a soft defense, and struggles. Well, because he tore his meniscus. Can you think back through time of a time that you were fooled by fantasy football's narrative industrial complex? I wish I had one epic story that encapsulated this, but I'll just say that... Oh, come on. Make something up. <laughs> or or dismiss the question altogether as being beneath you. I'd love that. <laughs> you know... 
Matt, why don't you come up with some real questions and then maybe I'll answer them. (laughs) (laughs) All right, moving on. While it was a great week for Narrative Street, Game Day Twitter struggled last week. A lot of fourth quarter performances made a lot of in-game tweets look ridiculous. This was my favorite. In the first quarter, Mike Taglier from Pro Football Focus writes, Marvin Jones, colon, space, nuclear. (laughs) So I ran to the box score. What happened? What happened, Mike? What happened? Marvin Jones caught an eight-yard touchdown. That's it. It's the first quarter. Uh, That's it. That was it. And then he didn't catch a pass for the rest of the game. I'm not sure if that's an M80, let alone a nuclear blast. Meanwhile, Golden Tate, eight receptions, 160 yards, and a touchdown. (laughs) So if if Marvin Jones' performance was quote-unquote nuclear, what was Golden Tate? Thermonuclear, I guess. Apocalyptic, Armageddon-inducing. Uh, it was impressive, and I think that that had a lot more to do with – well, there's a lot of factors, as there always is, but it had a lot to do with the Oritic being out. I mean, I think – and just as Anquan Bolden has benefited from Eric Ebron being out, I think Golden Tate is that underneath target that is attractive, and you get the ball in his hands, and he's going to he's gonna make big plays. That's always been his, his game. This offense is thriving. It's not all going to be those short kind of targets. In the past, he's – been a reasonable outside receiver, a deep threat. I mean, his yards per catch have been plunging for the last couple of seasons. But overall, this offense is thriving in the passing game, not so much with the ground game. They have one of the weaker defenses in the league. I would say that, yeah, Golden Tate is back. I mean, I think that he had some head things to get through, worked out the way that Michael Floyd has been wrestling with whatever, you know, demons of execution are are riddling his his game and and golden tate was making mistakes and uh, i think that this is the quintessential get right game that should you know have him happy and focused and optimistic again and that's how i feel about him washington gives up more fantasy points to wide receivers than the average nfl defense but they also have one of the game's better outside cover corners in josh norman josh norman projects to lock up with Marvin Jones, not Golden Tate. We have Golden Tate in the number 25 position on our weekly rankings, and I'm worried that's too low because if Marvin Jones will be occupying Josh Norman, Golden Tate could be a supernova in week seven. I can't believe the thematic thread running through the show has somehow, some way, been Cody Latimer. We obviously are going to have to wait until next year. They never change classifications mid-season, but uh, they don't. Uh, not to my knowledge. Not any of the major platforms. What? No. Oh God! I didn't know that. They consider that cheating. He goes. It was wheels up with Michael Floyd. I thought Michael Floyd was wheels up. <laughs> And I was like, why have I not heard this wheels up phrase? I love the wheels up. On ESPN, they would have featured that hit in the knockdown.
what is that segment? He was fucked up! What was that segment they do? Knock the fuck out! What's the segment they do on ESPN? Jacked up! That's what it is. Jacked up! He was jacked up. Definitely Ricardo. You know, he sounds very like a, he's a salsa instructor or something. Run the breaking news. Kenny Britt is 28 years old. I'm the guy who's too much of a snob, too much of an athleticism snob or a talent snob, and the talent agnostic guy comes in and grabs Jaquiz Rogers or whoever, outbids me for Jaquiz Rogers, and then all of a sudden I'm getting beat by Jaquiz Rogers the next week. Definitely Ricardo. You know, he sounds very like a, he's a salsa instructor or something. Or he's facing the Jacksonville Jaguars defense, whose best player is Prince Akamuka. Wait, well, fuck. <laughs> Amuka Maka Maka. The targets are starting to balance out. Uh, you know, I think that this isn't just going to be... John, John, that was the end of the show. Okay. <laughs> you didn't get it nearly as bad as Mike Taglier did. He fooled the hell out of me. I ran to the box score expecting to see an 80-yard touchdown, and it was an 8-yard touchdown. Like, what? What? And the word out of Denver is, I've never used that phrase on this show... Don't add the quite frankly. I don't want the softeners. No softeners. Just straight condescension. Hit me, John. No more softeners. Hit me hard. Turning up the knobs on the condescension. I love it, John. I love it. Hit me again. Definitely Ricardo. You know, he sounds very like a, he's a salsa instructor or something. Anything else? You got anything else? I got any, any actual information about his fantasy potential or? Eh, not really. 